Time for swordplay. Alex, Irish artist Derek Rowan, lifelong friend of U2's Bono, says that they both came to Christ through Rowan's dad. Well, it sounds like they both finally found what they were looking for. Okay, there it is. But I still (laughs) haven't found what I'm looking for. Except when I do. All right. (laughs) This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Joel, Chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, that's right. And uh, we have a lot to cover here, Nick, so we're just going to jump straight into it. We have here in verse 1, what is Zion and why would they blow a a trumpet there? Yeah, blow a trumpet in Zion is the first phrase there in verse 1 of chapter 2, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. And so Zion, it refers to the Temple Mount, uh, and by extension, Jerusalem, uh, the whole city, right. but specifically that uh, that Temple Mount. And so this was the, the sacred dwelling of Yahweh. Here, the trumpet blast, it was uh, essentially the ancient equivalent of an air raid siren. It was signaling that armies were approaching. It used to get a similar idea over in Jeremiah 4, verses 5 and 6, where the trumpet uh, sounds and, and the threat is coming from the north. And we're actually going to be introduced to the northerner here when we get to verse 20. But um, right, right. this is a, a different blast here because it's signaling the day of Yahweh. That's why they are to tremble in the land is the awful, terrible, no good day of the Lord is upon them. Uh, interestingly, later, verse 15, the horn will blast. It'll actually be a call for worship to consecrate a fast. But here, it's an alarm. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Mount Zion, it is in Jerusalem. The events described then should be taken as happening to Jerusalem, which lines up with what we saw in chapter 1 last week with the call for the temple priests to mourn, to repent. And the backdrop for all the uh, trumpet language here is Numbers chapter 10. And there are different trumpet calls depending on the occasion, whether you're calling for assembly or calling for war. In verse 9 of Numbers 10, it says that whenever war is in the land um, and war breaks out, then the trumpets, they would serve as not only an alarm, but also as a call out to Yahweh so that they would be remembered by their God and thus be saved. Here in Joel, the enemy that they need to be saved from is going to be sent by Yahweh. And yet, if they repent, Yahweh will call off the attack and destroy the enemy that he sent in the first place. So interesting backdrop there with trumpets, Nick. Verse 2 then. Yep. When Yahweh comes here, the day of Yahweh, it says it's like clouds of thick darkness. Why is that? Why is the day of Yahweh like clouds of thick darkness? So this is stock prophetic language for the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. Uh, you get similar pictures in Amos 5, verse 18, Zephaniah 1, verse 15. So clouds, these were uh, a prophetic, even a poetic uh, symbol for the chariots of Yahweh. A chariot was a vehicle for war. You can see especially Psalm 104, verse 3, how he makes the clouds his chariots. Right, right. Coupled this with the, the thick darkness here, thick darkness, it can be a symbol for the gloom and the doom of the coming disaster at the same time. 
You remember that at Mount Sinai, God descended in a thick cloud, and it is in thick darkness where God was. Uh, Exodus 19, verse 9, 20, verse 21. Uh, 1 Kings 8, verse 12 talks about how Yahweh dwells in thick darkness. That's very interesting, also uh, part of this idea. Uh, What do you think? Yeah, I think that's uh, exactly right on. The storm clouds, those are Yahweh's chariot. Good catch there with Psalm uh, what was it, 104? Yep. And it's also his covering for his presence, both for his presence and the presence of his angelic entourage. You see this at Mount Sinai. It says that he descended there with uh, with numerous angels. In the Masoretic text, it says Kadesh in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, but in the Septuagint, it says angels at his right hand. And so that's where you get this angelic entourage idea that that's where Yahweh... Uh, travels and that's who he travels with also deuteronomy 33 verse 26 talks again about yahweh riding the skies through the heavens he came in a pillar of cloud against egypt in order to protect them from the egyptian soldiers and to lead them out of egypt during the exodus you can look back on exodus 13 uh, 21 especially where it says he looks down on that cloud uh, judgment came again, though, for Egypt later on. So you have hundreds of years later during Isaiah's day, and it says in Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, that Egypt will be judged, and Yahweh is coming. He's coming to judge them, and he is riding on a swift cloud to come and judge Egypt. Similarly, though, we have in the New Testament, this idea continues on. Jesus, he left in the clouds, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and he was said to return in the same way. And what makes sense out of all of this is the fact that you have to remember the Old Testament speaks of the sky, the part where the clouds and the birds are. It speaks of the sky as part of heaven. And it makes sense when then Yahweh descends, when he comes down to earth, he comes in what looks like storm clouds and lightning and thunder. Any thoughts, Nick? No, that's that's right on the money. Well, verse 2, we have another thing here. It says that there will be a numerous and mighty people that invade. Who are they? Yeah, uh, middle verse 2, mine says a great and powerful people. The NIV actually reads a large and mighty army. So they skipped right to the uh, interpretation here for us. Um, (laughs) And... Interpreting the book of Joel from a pre-exilic date that is before the Babylonian exile uh, sometime in the early part of the 6th century BC. I'm going to go with Babylon here as the, the great and powerful people, the large and mighty army that's coming against Israel. What do you think? Yeah, I think just like the swarms of locusts that had already attacked in chapter 1, so will this army now be in their invasion of Jerusalem like the locusts and uh, of course this is Jerusalem again that will be invaded that's why we have trumpets on Mount Zion uh, mentioned in verse 1 now although I take the post-exilic date that this was written post-exile I agree that the events spoken of right here are pre-exile that they are warning about the coming of the Babylonian army Uh, verses 2, 3, 6, and 10. Nick, we have some differences here in the Septuagint from the Masoretic text. What differences uh, did you see going through this section? Yeah, just a few that I caught. Um, So, um, 
think it's in verse two. The, the they're like blackness as my ESV, but in the Septuagint it says they're like dawn. So is the large army like blackness or are they like dawn? Um, uh, gloom and darkness are transposed in what uh, verse three or verse six? I think it's verse three. Um, Where's Eden in the Septuagint? That's that not in verse three, right? It says luxurious um, garden instead. Yeah, right. um, and then uh, are the people's faces in verse six? Are they pale or are they burnt in the Septuagint? They're burnt in my ESV. They're pale. So those right. are some of the differences I caught. What'd you catch? Yeah, uh, in verse two, it says it. Um, but the Septuagint renders it as him. So the Septuagint reads, There has never been anything like him, nor will there be again after him. So it starts to beg the question, who is him? And in light of the army likely being Babylon, the him, then we could see as King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Hmm. Uh, Verses 3, 6, and 10, it continues this idea, though, that instead of, in my New American Standard, saying them, speaking of the army, um, the Septuagint keeps saying him. So it reads, a fire consumes before him, and behind him a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before him, but a desolate wilderness behind him. And nothing at all escapes him. Before him, the peoples are in anguish. Before him, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. So what do we make of all this? If him is Nebuchadnezzar, then we certainly have a dark picture of his war campaign against Jerusalem. And I take these verses as simply posing the possibility that this war campaign will come against Jerusalem. It's depending upon their response to God's word, whether they will repent or not. But since we do know from history that Nebuchadnezzar succeeds, he wars against Jerusalem, he burns it to the ground, the people, uh, they didn't repent. So 586 BC, Jerusalem is sacked by the Babylonians. So another thought, though, that I thought we could track on as we go is that, get this, if the locust from chapter 1, if those were shadowing the reality of the Babylonian army that would come uh, in chapter 2, then can we take that another level? Can we say that the hymn, Nebuchadnezzar, is also shadowing another figure, perhaps a spiritual figure? Is there a supernatural power behind Nebuchadnezzar? And I kind of throw back to uh, the book of Daniel, right? The prince of Persia. Uh, well, the prince of Persia, human, is probably not going to hold up very long against an angel that was sent to Daniel, right? <laughs> but uh, who is the real prince of Persia? So who's the real prince of Babylon here behind Nebuchadnezzar? So let's we'll keep riffing on that as we go along. Uh, any thoughts, Nick? No, there can't be another spiritual figure behind him. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Yeah. Uh, verse 3. Why do you think, Nick, would fire along with the Garden of Eden be mentioned? Uh, obviously, these are metaphors, but why Why use those metaphors? What do you think? So uh, kind of using like a, I think they call it a narratival framework for interpreting this prophecy. You have this large army that's coming, and what they find before them, these invaders find this lush, fertile, 
promised land, which is pictured here as the Garden of Eden. And yet, fire is behind them, fire is before them. They are just this uh, consuming fire that's going to take the Garden of Eden, that is the promised land, and just burn it to a desolate waste, a uh, desolate wilderness. Uh, that's what's uh, that's what's coming upon the land. A couple different ideas also can emerge here. It could be that God is in view here. Uh, the original says that the the fire is before and behind Him. Right, right. Here, and so it could be that God is in His strange work of bringing judgment. He is a consuming fire. Uh, he's going to uh, bring fire upon the land. Fire, typical stock language for for judgment as well right uh, of course since the judgment is from God it could be that the army has counted as his you get other images like that in uh, prophetic language that God uses these nations to do his strange work um, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon is that's that's typical I think you see it in Jeremiah 25 verse 9 we may get more specific on that later in the questions but that could be what's going on here as well so a few different ways of looking at it what do you think yeah yeah um side note if it sounds like i'm under a construction site it's because there are trees being cut down outside my window (laughs) so uh sorry about that but yeah i agree um there are some different things that could be in view here you know to mention the garden of eden or even a luxurious garden as the septuagint words it that could possibly evoke several things in the Israelites' mind, right? First, there was the original Garden of Yahweh, but a supernatural enemy, the serpent. He intervenes, and Adam and Eve, they have to suffer death as a result. And who has to carry out the actual punishment? Uh, Yahweh, by kicking them out of the garden and placing a guardian karuv with a flaming sword of fire to block the way back to the garden. But as we discussed last week in chapter 1, Israel was supposed to be the new humanity, God's new people, his inheritance, a vine planted in his new garden, the promised land. But now the same thing is happening because of idolatry, uh, the seeking after of these other gods, these supernatural beings. The Israelites will be kicked out of the land. They'll be exiled in Babylonian captivity. Now, who had to carry out the punishment? Again, Yahweh did. But through, as you said, the army of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So there's definitely some layers of things going on here. My dog is now barking in the background. (laughs) (laughs) So the mentioning of fire burning down the land before and behind the invading enemy would possibly evoke images, again, from the Exodus. Uh, The Egyptians were under judgment at the time... um, that God rescued his people from Egypt. God protected Israel with a cloud of uh, pillar of fire. Exodus 14, 24 says he looks down from the cloud and pillar of fire when he's protecting him them from the Egyptians. They couldn't get past it when they were trying to pursue the Israelites at the Red Sea. But here in Joel, this all-consuming fire was not for the protection of God's people, but for their destruction. So Israel then here is being treated like Egypt for her idolatry. And this is irony. This is divine reversal, but for the worse. This is a fulfilling of covenant for the cursings listed in Deuteronomy 28. So the question then, is him then Yahweh? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Or is it another supernatural power or being 
behind Nebuchadnezzar? I'm going to say yes to all three. We're going to try to weave them together here as we go along. So, uh, <laughs> any uh, thoughts, and, Nick? Well, and then and the so the third option there, the spiritual, supernatural power, the the spiritual being. I mean that that, that entity would be under the constraining or restraining power of Yahweh. He's only doing what Yahweh would have him to do, right? Right, and we're going to have to unpack that um, later on in verse 11, because we're going to have this hymn again, and Mm -hmm. we're going to try to nail down who is this hymn. But yes, the hymn is still under the control of Yahweh. But how would that work, especially if we're talking about... um, in a malevolent or evil supernatural being. So we'll go through some more options there. Um, verses 4 and 5, though, as we make our way there. Nick, why do you think these enemies are being described like horses and chariots? Who are those described like horses and chariots? Verses 4 and 5. Uh, the who would be the armies coming from the north, the which in this case, again, for me, would be the Babylonians. And so the description of them as horses and chariots and and all that, um, I think the idea here is that Israel's foot soldiers would be no match for the cavalry, the, the chariot troops that are descending upon them. There's just, it's, they're, they're going to be overpowered, right? And so uh, I think that's why they're described that like, like that. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, there are, again, multiple layers here for me when I read this. At first, it almost sounds like we're talking about the locusts again. Because chapter 1, verse 6, the locusts are described as a mighty nation without number and with the teeth of a lion. But that was past tense. Uh, That had already happened. They had already invaded. Food and gladness had already been cut off. But here in chapter 2, and really uh, chapter 1, verse 15... The enemy now is not yet there. The day of Yahweh is near, it's coming, but it's still avoidable through repentance. So if verses 4 and 5 says the enemy then that is coming is like horses, they are like chariots, but the real army that's coming, Babylon, you know, they, why are they like horses and chariots? Babylon actually has real horses and real chariots. (laughs) So why the simile? Why the like language. And here's your New Testament connection that we uh, mentioned at the beginning of the last podcast. Revelation chapter 9 verses 1 through 11, you have the blowing of the fifth trumpet, and this opens up the pit. The pit is uh, in Greek Tartarus. It's the maximum security prison in the underworld known as Hades or Hebrew Sheol. And from the pit comes smoke that blacks out the sun and the sky, and then out of the smoke come locusts. And get this, they look like horses, they have teeth like lions, and they sound like chariots. But these locusts from Revelation 9, they are not uh, normal locusts. You know, they don't sound like locusts at all, actually. They sound like demons. So what if what we see in Joel 2 is not the description of locusts like we saw in chapter 1, And not just the Babylonian army, which will invade, but the things that are happening in the unseen realm. Yahweh is unleashing an army of demonic forces upon Jerusalem. 
So when the Babylonians come, they will be an unstoppable force empowered by the demonic spirits of Tartarus. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> but it fits. It makes sense to me. And I don't know. What do you think, Nick? Well, they could just be horses and chariots. <laughs> <laughs> well, then why yeah. are they like horses and like chariots? Uh, so that actually bleeds into the next question. Yeah, there you go. Are these locusts or soldiers, verses 7 through 9? So there is an interpretive view which sees this section as a continuation of chapter 1. And so these locusts, uh, these are locusts which are like a powerful army. And therefore, it's not actually a powerful army. It's like that. So... Um, you, you can some even go so far as to say that locusts and horses are similar in appearance, right? Well, it's like, <laughs> yes, uh-huh. of course. Right, yeah, exactly. Put a, put a little saddle on the locusts and um, put your Lego on top of them? So it, that view falls short for several reasons. One is that like, right? And so this, I speak, uh, I think, speaks to what you were talking about with, the, well, why the like? Why the, why the simile? Right, right. Um, like can be used to describe exactly what something is. Um, and, like, for example, Joel 1, verse 15. Let's just stay in the book of Joel. Where the day of the Lord is like destruction from the Almighty. Well, is it like that or is it actually that? Well, yeah, but that it, it is destruction from the Lord. Um, and so it's describing exactly what the thing is. And so like, at least in prophetic literature, can be used that way just to describe what the thing is. Second, the, the, there's strong military language throughout this section, and I think it's intentional because it's describing an actual army uh, in this case, the army of Babylon. And so the conflation, here's a third thing, the conflation of locusts and army, I think is intentional. Um, it's, uh, there, but one is not intended to exclude the other. All right. So it's not intended that, um, we, we only see locusts here and we're not supposed to see an army here. Well, I, I think the, the overlap in the language is intentional. You've had the, locust plague they descended on the land and now chapter two here comes here comes um this army that is is descended in a very similar way right right and so um so i think that's that's the 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 reason for the simile uh here at least some of the some of the explanations here that that hopefully uh, explain the 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 simile language, but also the the horses and the chariots, the locusts and the soldiers and all that. So right, right. Uh, would you? What do you think? So I, uh, I I agree with most of what you said. I think there's one little part where I might disagree. Like in one fifteen, you says like destruction from the Almighty. Uh, my NASB doesn't say like. I think it just says as destruction from the Almighty. Right. So but, my English standard says the same thing, but okay. as or like simile. Yeah. I think your points are valid, though. The The conflation doesn't uh, mean that we should um, exclude uh, one from the other. And so what I'm saying is that just like the locusts are described like the army, I think now the army, the threat of the coming army, is being described like something else, like something uh, demonic and supernatural. So um, there was... 
the Locust, and then there was the actual army, first pictured by the Locust in Chapter 1, but now the Locust and the army have become sort of one in this conflated picture in order to describe something supernatural behind the coming enemy, a horde of demons. And I think this was the way it was being interpreted because you have the reusing of the exact same imagery in the book of Revelation, but there's no question as to the origin of the locusts in Revelation chapter 9. They are from the pit. They are demonic. So I'm not trying to read Revelation back into Joel. I don't (laughs) want to do that. I know that's what maybe would be the kickback here. But there is a certain way in which Joel was interpreted that I think continues on through uh, the New Testament and through Second Temple literature for that matter. But we don't have to get all into that yet. <laughs> we have lots of ground to cover. Nick, there's something that happens here at the coming of Yahweh and at the coming of the army for that instance. It's in verse 2, it's in verse 10. Now, verse 2, it says, the land will tremble. But then verse 10 says the whole, well, it doesn't say the whole, it says the earth will quake. Uh, which is it, Nick? Is it the whole earth, or is it just the land of Israel that the author has in mind here? So, language denoting cosmic upheaval is typical for prophecy. Joel is one instance where we see that here, where verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. So, all of that, the the earth shaking, the heavens trembling, sun, moon, stars refusing to shine, that's all highly figurative, apocalyptic language that denotes it's the end of the world as they know it. Uh, the normal order of things, like the sun rising in the morning, or the very confidence that you have on uh, the ground meeting your feet when you walk, that's all being undone, as it were as the world that these people knew is coming to an end, essentially. Which is, uh, again, from my interpretive point of view, that's exactly what happened when Babylon finally came in the third deportation and hauled the people off into exile. It was it was the end of the world as they knew it. How do you capture that? Well, here's some stock prophetic language that, that typifies that. Uh, what say you? I think you're right, Nick, but I... I don't think that that, I think that's a good starting point, but I think it needs to go farther because there are other things we have to consider concerning their worldview, how they would have talked about the end of their world as they knew it. Um, Interestingly, okay, verse 1 and 10, I think I said verse 2 and 10 before, I actually meant verse uh, 1 and 10. They use the same Hebrew and Greek word for uh, land. Yeah, one says land, the other says earth. But it's the same Hebrew word, Eretz. It's the same Greek word, gay. This is, uh, for to translate one as land and the other as earth, that's a total interpretive move. Um, the presuppositions and conclusions of the translators um, are deciding when to translate the same word as either earth or land. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It's easy to interpret it as land because we have a location given, Zion. The inhabitants are there. But chapter 2, verse 10, it's assumed to be earth because it mentions sun, moon, and stars. And so you're like, oh, it must mean everything. However, that interpretation then is it being earth instead of land. That's because I believe the translators are seeing this verse 
only in its literal meaning, and not for its supernatural meaning, which was understood by the worldview of the ancient Near East, the biblical writers, and the original audience. And so I would contend that chapter 2, verse 10 should be translated land, just like it was in verse 1. That would be consistent, and how it also would be consistent with talking about the sun, moon, and stars, we'll talk about next. But the short answer is, it's just the land of Israel that will shake. The uh, original audience, I think, knew that, and it should have been translated land. But here's another thing that we miss from the original language. It almost slipped by me, by the way. <laughs> when reading two one and 2.10 in the Septuagint, the word um, there used for the land trembling or quaking, uh, it wasn't trembling or quaking. It was it, the Septuagint is translated as confounded, confounded. The land is confounded in both verses. Now, this may mean the same thing as trembling or quaking. That's an interpretive move again. But the word for confound in the Greek is sunkeo. And the first time you see that in the Bible, the Septuagint anyway, uh, is at, you guessed it, the Tower of Babel. (laughs) So, you know, where at Babylon, God judged humanity. And the Septuagint reads, he confounded their language. He sunkeo, their language. It was at the dividing of humanity, Tower of Babel, that God gave them over to the other gods. Again, Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 through 9. If Israel was God's new humanity, as I've mentioned before, then this event happening here, the threat of the army coming in, confounding them, this event is like another Tower of Babel event. It is judgment on the new humanity. And so I think there are these intentional allusions being uh, made back to the garden, back to uh, the Exodus, uh, to the Tower of Babel, back to the and back to the Exodus. Um, so let's get more into the sun, moon, and stars thing here. Nick, why do you think the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars are mentioned? Why are they darkened? What would that mean to them? Verse 10. Uh, like I said uh, in the previous question, I think it's all uh, highly figurative prophetic language for the world as they knew it was coming to an end and um, again stock language for describing that and you say so they might not literally be darkened then is that what you're saying no i don't think so yeah i agree i agree with that so what would it mean then for it not to be literally darkened you say you know it's the world ending as they knew it um but not literally ending so i agree but we have to keep in mind that the sun moon and stars are not rocks in space or balls of gas floating millions of miles away. Not to the ancient reader, anyway. This was stock terminology. Sun, moon, stars. That was stock terminology for the gods, describing the gods which ruled over the other nations. Uh, see Deuteronomy four nineteen through 20. God gave the nations over to worship the sun, moon, and stars. These gods are real supernatural beings. Call them fallen angels if you want, but they are evil and they will be judged, according to Psalm 82, for their wicked rulership. But here, through the invading army, it says the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. And we can take this to mean uh, a few different things, right? Um, They could be darkened because Yahweh comes in his thick clouds of darkness, right? When you see a thick clouds of darkness covering the sky, you're not going to see the light coming from the sun, moon, or stars. Um, Also, if the sun, moon, and stars are stock language for the gods of the nations, then the invading enemy, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, through his 
conquering of all the nations in the earthly realm, that could be mirroring what is happening in the heavenly realm. A supernatural enemy army is judging and subduing the gods of the nations. Because that was the thought, is that a nation doesn't go down or get subdued by another nation unless a similar thing also happened in the unseen realm, as on earth as it is in heaven. Here's another thing that would be going on. Just like as we saw when we briefly cross-referenced Revelation 9, it was the smoke from the locusts coming up out of the pit that blackened out the sun in the sky. So God may be using a demonic army to empower the Babylonians in order to judge both the peoples of the land and the gods which rule those lands. Except, uh, of course, Israel's God is not being judged or subdued because he is the one giving the marching orders and against his own land. That's the shocking part about all of this. Um, a lot of tangents there, trying to stay <laughs> concise, <laughs> but also it is kind of complicated if, um, you, if, you, if you've never thought of this before. Any thoughts, Nick? Connections. 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 <laughs> All around. Verse 11, Nick, let's keep going. What is Yahweh's army? Who is he who carries out Yahweh's word? So, Yahweh's army is the army that he is using to bring judgment, whatever army that is. Uh, we can go back into sacred history and talk about when Assyria came against Israel that army of Assyria was Yahweh's army. Um, in this case, for uh, Judah and the coming uh, Babylonian army, it's the Babylonian army that is Yahweh's army. So then the commander of that army, in this case, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he is actually Yahweh's servant yep. as he's doing his strange work. Right. Jeremiah, I think I referenced this earlier, Jeremiah 25.9, right. talks about how Nebuchadnezzar is the servant of Yahweh in, uh, in that he is executing the will of Yahweh and bringing judgment upon his people. As you mentioned before, keeping covenant even in that action. So Joel is in agreement with other uh, contemporary prophets. Uh, he is affirming that all peoples, all powers are under Yahweh's control. Uh, what say you? I agree. The army is Babylon, and the he is Nebuchadnezzar. But uh, to keep going on the next layer that I've been ranting on <laughs> is that who are the <laughs> spiritual powers behind them? Um the spiritual powers behind them are the demonic locust army from the pit of Sheol, led by a singular character. Who was the power behind Nebuchadnezzar? Of course, Yahweh, but is there somebody else? This is where it gets interesting. Of course, Yahweh sends his word to be carried out, but who would be the one carrying out this order through Nebuchadnezzar and his army? And I've come up with three options here. Uh, the first option is that maybe it's the captain of the host of Yahweh, as seen in Joshua chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. There, this figure accepts worship from Joshua and is likely the visible Yahweh himself, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Now, I don't like this option, though, <laughs> because the army and its leader are said later in verse 20 to be driven away. And the Septuagint even makes him sound like a demonic entity driven back into chaos where he belongs. This will not do for speaking of the visible Yahweh. So, not a big fan of that option. 
Option number two, the him is Satan, the serpent of old from the Garden of Eden, our enemy and adversary. Um, in the parable, or the taunt, as it said, taken up against the king of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, we have strong allusions made back to the fall of a supernatural rebel. Of course, it's about Babylon, but it also uses Nebuchadnezzar uh, when taunting him, another rebel, to talk about the same fall that will come upon Nebuchadnezzar. So if Satan himself then is the power behind Nebuchadnezzar, both he and his demonic horde will eventually be cast out again back to where they belong, as we'll see in verse 20. The problem with this view, though, is that we have to ask why Satan would carry out Yahweh's word. Isn't Satan a rebel? <laughs> so why would he listen to Yahweh? Perhaps he just despises humans so much that if Yahweh says, you can take my people now, Satan says, gladly. <laughs> so that could work. That could work. Option number three, the power behind Nebuchadnezzar carrying out Yahweh's word would be what is called an avenging angel. There are angels that specialize in bringing plagues and judgments upon the earth. Psalm 78 verse 49 while in the context of talking about all the plagues that God brought upon Egypt during the Exodus, it says that these were carried out by a band of destroying angels. Psalm 78, 49, look it up. We see these same kind of destroying angels, I think, in Revelation chapter 6, when the four horsemen are called upon to issue destruction. In fact, the destroying angel in charge of the locust from the pit in Revelation 9, he's just straight up called the destroyer. <laughs> Abaddon in Hebrew, Apollyon in Greek. And I like this last option. I think it's the best option. But option two also works fine by me. So I think the spiritual power behind Nebuchadnezzar is either Satan or an avenging angel. Uh, any thoughts there, Nick? Nope. I think it's, you've upholstered it. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm sure my, my audience is sitting with their jaw open, <laughs> wondering, how did this happen to Alex? Your learning has driven you mad. Okay, verses 13 through 14. Nick, does God ever change his mind? Has he ever relented? Why does it talk like this? Uh, so let's, uh, let's – pause here for a moment because there is something that is significant in verse 13 of Joel 2. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, Yahweh your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That confession there is expressed all over the Old Testament. Um, Exodus 34, verse 6. I think that's the first time it appears. Exodus right. 34, verse 6. Right. But it's also in Nehemiah 9, verse 17. Jonah 4, verse 2. And there are, again, several places where that same confession, Yahweh is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In chesed, that steadfast love. Um, uh, it is the self-revelation of Yahweh, God's core nature is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But he also relents over disaster, and I think that speaks to his sovereignty, that he is absolutely sovereign. And yet, even in his sovereignty, he, remain, he, he retains the freedom 
to relent from disaster. An example of this, we can go to Jonah, where this confession, this self-revelation, self-disclosure of God is found in right. Jonah 4, verse 2. Right. In, in his day, in Jonah's day, it was Nineveh. Nineveh repented at the half-hearted preaching of Jonah, right. and God changed his mind. He relented in disaster. Uh, at least for, what, about 100 years, something like that, before yeah. Nahum comes on the scene and says, oh, time's up, no more. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, he does. In, at least that's one example where he does change his mind and relented from the disaster that he was going to bring. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. In fact, uh, it's funny. It's Jonah there who admits that God is uh, gracious and compassionate, but that's not what I he told the people. I knew that was you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That's not the people didn't know. The people actually, if you go just by what's said, the people of Nineveh have no for sure idea that Yahweh will change his mind. They just hope that maybe he will. (laughs) And so they repent on that hope, and then he does. Um, I agree. You will run into verse after verse that will confound the scholar who refuses to accept a God who can and does truly change his mind. Now, I know some will claim that the immutability of God requires him to never change his mind, ever. And any verse that ever says that he changes his mind in any way is merely the wisping of a mother to her ignorant child. That's Calvin's words. Now, that's a neat trick. You get to state the truth, and then the rules by which you must come to that truth? <laughs> come uh-huh. on now. Yeah. This will not do. As you mentioned, God changed his mind about destroying Nineveh. Also, through Moses' intercession, God changed his mind about destroying Israel on Mount Sinai. This happened, yeah, yeah. This happens quite often in the Old Testament. What God does not change is his nature, his nature to be gracious, compassionate, patient, loving, that's the exact phrasing of Joel 2.13 and Exodus 34.6 when he renews that covenant to replace the tablets broken by Moses at the Israelites' rebellion, rebellion at Mount Sinai. What's the message then here for uh, the audience of Joel? The message was the Israelites can still repent before the army gets there. The covenant can still be renewed. It's not too late. That's the message. Any thoughts, Nick? Right on the money. All right. Verse 12 and 15 then. There is a call for fasting to accompany all of this. Just briefly, Nick, will you tell us what is fasting exactly and what is the purpose of fasting? So, and and I think we missed this last week in 1 verse 14 where it talks about fasting there as well. Sanctify a fast. Right, Um, right. And so, yeah, you do have these calls in Joel to... To fast. What is a fast? It is the voluntary abstinence from food, sometimes water. That would be what's called an absolute fast, but you're only supposed to do that for about three days because that's about how long your body can go without water. <laughs> right, you'll die. <laughs> um, but your body can go a very long time um, without food. Yeah. And um, by the way, um, I know people talk about like the Lenten fast during the season of Lent. I remember growing up, I had a friend who was. Uh, some form of religious, and his family observed Lent. Right. And I remember he gave up video games for the 40-day Lenten fast. And I can appreciate, you know, wanting to sacrifice something in order to draw closer to God. That's not really a true 
fast as it's defined in the Bible. A fast right. in the Bible is always that voluntary abstinence from food. Sometimes it's called to aff- uh, to afflict yourself. We uh, we are afflicting ourselves, and it's the idea there is it's meant to draw attention the the attention of God to that special petition can be made on behalf of the worshiper. Right, right. And that seems to be the purpose behind the fast is to afflict yourself. You are suffering, you are going without food, you are denying yourself basic uh, needs and requirements so that you can get the attention of God and offer up a special request. Uh, What say you? You mean, Nick, it's not a dietary choice sanctioned by God for the well-being of my body? (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, God has some rules about our diet. Yeah. What? What about the Daniel fast? I'm just supposed Mm. to eat vegetables. Nope, nope, (laughs) and nope. (laughs) Fasting is spiritual. It's, uh, yeah, you really are refraining from eating food, but as far as when you fast, in the Law of Moses, it's required one day a year on the Day of Atonement. It's from sunrise to sunset. Otherwise, fasting was called upon based on the occasion and whether a given situation needed fasting, like you were trying to repent you accompany repentance with fasting. That's based on the need of the occasion, like we have here in Joel. Um, Sometimes fasting is uh, done alongside petition, especially petition for protection or being saved, like when the exiles return from captivity to Jerusalem and they pray and fast so that they can be protected on their journey. Um, Or even as we continue into the New Testament, fasting is accompanied prayer for the purpose of demonic delivery. There were certain uh, demonic powers which Jesus said can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. Uh, None of this is about diet. None of this is about cleansing your body. This is focused on spiritual needs. I will say, though, and we probably should give this caveat, talk with the doctor before you engage in fasting, uh, just to make sure that you're healthy enough to do so, because... uh, yeah, it's a tough thing to do. Right. And I think that's why we probably don't talk about it very much, because it is not a lot of fun to do that, but right. it and, is, nevertheless, yeah. a godly spiritual activity. And super long fast don't necessarily uh, need to be what the occasion calls for. Again, the Day of Atonement was a, just a fast from sunrise to sunset, and that was enough to celebrate the most uh, important day of the year. Um, to draw near to God, to have your sins atoned for. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 17, um, my translation says that uh, the people will be um, a heritage. That, that um, I believe yours says that they're an inheritance. Right. Uh, so, Alex, talk for a moment about why is it that they are called Yahweh's inheritance. Yeah, Yahweh's people being his inheritance. This continues in the New Testament. Go to Ephesians 1 for that. But the root for that idea is in the uh, in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis. It's in Deuteronomy. The nations belonged to other gods. Deuteronomy 4, 19 through 20, chapter 32, 7 through 9. But Israel is Yahweh's inheritance. The prayer of the priests here in Joel 2, 17, it mirrors the same prayer of Moses when he interceded for God to change his mind about destroying his people. He says, don't let the Egyptians mock you in your mighty work that you did in the Exodus. 
But now we see that um, we don't, it's the prayer to not let the nations see this and your people become a reproach. It's this again, your people, coupled with talking to the people saying, Yahweh is your God, the inheritance language of belonging one to the other. It also has, with this idea, the exclusion of all those who don't belong to this God and to um, the people who don't belong to the other gods. So, again, just that idea rooted in Old Testament continues through in reference to the church as the true Israel, uh, as God's inheritance, Ephesians chapter 1. Just wanted to, I think we've talked about that, but a good reminder. So, Nick, verse 18 Right. We have another translation problem going on here. A little, de- little debate. Maybe it's a big difference, maybe not. Some translations have verse 18 as past. God did take mercy on them. He did become zealous for them. Some translations have verse 18 as future. Then God will take mercy on them. Then God will be zealous for his people. What difference does it make? What do you think? Yeah, and I think you're right. We're probably going to start diverging here a little bit just just because of the interpretive framework that we're each working with, and I think that's okay. Um, sure. Yeah, then Yahweh became jealous for his land, had pity on his people is how my ESV translates that. It's a, it's a past tense thing. Several uh, versions do that. The Revised Standard does the same thing. Um, the NIV has it as future tense. Uh, he will be jealous. He will have pity on his people. <clears throat> I think other translations have that as well. Both are acceptable translations of uh, the original. Uh, but the past tense, so I am told, um, is is preferable, uh, at least in, in translation exercises. For me, and again, the interpretive, the way I'm interpreting the book of Joel, uh, I think the difference is marginal. Again, for me, we're talking about a pre-exilic date before the exile. And I believe this is God, through the prophet Joel, promising that God, he, he, it's, a, it's a done deal, essentially, in the mind of God. That he, he became jealous and he had pity on his people. That he, there would be a relenting and there would be a restoration. And there is a shift that takes place here. Again, the way I read Joel, there's a shift that takes place in verse 18. Everything up to this point has been... Disaster, disaster, call to repentance, all that. Now it's, I will defend you. I will do right by you. I will I will uphold my covenant. I will come to the rescue of my covenant people. And I think that fits the overall narrative here of the prophecy. You have disaster, you have the call of repentance, but then you also have the restoration and that God would restore the fortunes of Israel. Um but you see it differently, right, Alex? Yeah, from my position, it does make a big difference because if it's past tense, then you have Yahweh already delivering and restoring Israel because of their repentance. It called for repentance. They repented. Now he's restoring them. The problem is, is that that never happened. Uh, they never repented from uh, that from from the warning of the locust plague and the impending doom of the Babylonian army. They didn't repent. The Babylonian army, they came in and destroyed them. And if it remains future tense, though, as my NASB uh, translates it, uh, by the way, it's, it's a debate about is this a wow yiktol verb in the uh, Hebrew, <laughs> uh, quite um, complicated. Some technical cheese right, was for Right, you. right. But if it remains future tense, then the possibility remained 
for Yahweh to deliver them, but that was contingent upon repentance. And so I guess if the past tense where he says, I, I already did this, I, I showed mercy on them, I restored them. I suppose even if the original language does give preference to the past tense there, um, then I would probably still, from a contextual argument, say that this is a continuance of the hypothetical proposal given to the people. In other words, this is what Yahweh would say if he repented. He would say, I am zealous for my people. I have had pity on them if they repented. But my problem is they never repented. So that kind of goes into our next question, verses 18 through 19, Nick. Did these restorative events ever happen? And if so, when? Uh, <clears throat> so the restoration back to the land after the exile, um, you've, you've emphasized their lack of repentance, but I think you get a bit of that with like Daniel. Uh, he does have his confession in what, chapter 9 is it, I think? Um, so, so I think sometime during the exile, the people realized what a uh, very bad, terrible thing they had done. There's some kind of national repentance that takes place. Um, even then, you know, I guess if we wanted to shove this even further down the timeline to like Nehemiah and Ezra, there, there does come a point where they do collectively call upon God. But at least for me, with the, in terms of this question, uh, the restoration events, I think, it's, I think it's when they come back to the land after the exile. But you say? Yeah, I don't <laughs> think the return after exile counts because <laughs> the, the verses here say that it's a restoration of what was lost in the locust plague of chapter 1. They're going to get their grain and wine and oil back. In fact, it, it will make up for what they lost to the locust. I mean, sure, after exile, they can resettle the land, they can grow those things, and then sacrifice can continue after t the temple is rebuilt. But doing that 70 years later isn't really making up for the years that they lost to the locust plague. I mean, that's a pretty big disconnect. The biggest thing here is that the army is said to be removed in the very next verse. But Babylon was never removed. The locust plague preceded the real army of the Babylonians, and Jerusalem was destroyed. And so I, I have a hard time seeing this as the restoration that occurs after the exile. Uh, so what, uh, let's, keep, let's keep going. <laughs> verse, sure. Verse 19, because uh, I think we should keep fleshing this out. So verse 19 uh, Yahweh says, then uh, I'll never make you a reproach again. Well, when were they a reproach before so that Yahweh would say, never again, I'll make you a reproach? So I think the reproach um, would be the captivity, the exile. And so this verse speaks to the restoration following the exile. Uh, interestingly, Ezekiel uses a similar, lang similar language in describing the return of the people. Um, and I think this is connected to the famine. Yeah, because he's sending the, the grain, the wine, and the oil. So there's going to be a reversal. There's not going to be a famine anymore. Um, but here in, uh, I'm in Ezekiel 36.30, he says there, I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And so, contextually, we'll come back to Joel. I think you see a pretty strong connection here too to famine 
And that would have been a reproach to the people um, in that time. But here's God saying, "No, that's I'm gonna I'm gonna reverse that. I'm gonna change that. And uh, you will end the famine, the end of the famine. After the exile, you come back to the land, start producing stuff. That will be the reversal of the reproach. So that's how I see it. And you say, okay. Well, here's here's my problems with that. <laughs> All of these have problems, by the way. So it's not for sure one way or the other. But except it is sure with mine. But uh, oh, I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> well, if one says during Babylonian captivity, then that's their reproach. Uh, as you are positing, then mm-hmm. this promise is nullified because later Jerusalem is destroyed again by Rome in AD 70. They are reproached again. Um, so this promise does not hold true. Uh, here's another option, though, where you don't have to have broken promises. Um, Israel, let's say they were made a reproach through the destruction of of the northern kingdom in 722 BC by the Assyrian army and had the southern Israelite kingdom Judah repented after the locust plague of chapter 1 after the famine again I don't uh, your Ezekiel verse I'd have to go back and look at that again but I would probably imagine that that's going to be a contingent promise just like it is here then the army of chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 they would never come Yahweh would change his mind they would never be made a reproach again as promised here in chapter 2 verse 19 and again to me this makes more sense if we take 2 1 through 11 as the result of not repenting the impending doom and 2 11 through 27 as the result if they do repent and Yahweh sends the army away so this army again verse 20 we have to see okay well what happens with this and how does it fit with uh, the context that we're trying to say uh, is either leading up to exile or during or post-exile. So, Nick, verse 20, it says there's an enemy from the north that Yahweh will remove. Who is the enemy from the north? Yeah, uh, and literally, in my English standard, retains this. It says, I will remove the northerner far from you. The northerner uh, could be Babylon, the nation, perhaps, and I think you mentioned this earlier in the chapter, it's Nebuchadnezzar, I think that's right as well. Nebuchadnezzar being kind of a representative of the that uh, northern invasion that uh, he does with his, his army. Right. It's also noteworthy here. So you have the north. Right. Um, you have the parched and desolate land, which, again, I'm told that would be like the southern uh, place down south, like the Negeb, the wilderness down there. So north-south, and then you have the eastern sea and the western sea. You have all four points of the compass here uh, that I think is is uh, very interesting, that I think factors into all this. But, um, well, I'll get to that more in a moment. Suffice it to say, I know some people read the, the locust plague into Joel 2 here. Um, locusts, the problem with that is locusts, they came from the south or the southeast, Um and I know some want to point to the very rare occasion when they come from the north. I think that happened back in the middle of the 20th century or something. Yeah, but they they always, they typically came from the south and from the southeast. So I just I don't I don't think we can see the locust plague here. But um, you say? All right. So so <laughs> the question I think depends on which north are we talking about? Are we talking about mm-hmm. geographical north? Or are we talking about cosmic north? There's a difference. Geographical north, well, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, they're north. The cosmic north, 
we have to go back to verse 11 because uh, cosmic north if we're talking about the cosmic realm then this is either going back to satan or perhaps an avenging angel uh, from the pit so the enemy from the north then uh, could be both geographical north and cosmic north um i'm not sure about the four cardinal points here northeast south and west um yeah, there was the Negev to the south, but I mean, weren't there deserts like way out east too, like more in Arabia and stuff? But I don't know. I have to get out a map. I have to look at that. But um, and also, when you say locusts come from the south, I mean, we're basing this off of the natural occurrence of locusts, right? Sure. Uh, but this is not natural. This is, at the very least, supernatural locusts um, for the literal locusts, and then. Uh, even more supernatural locusts as if we're going with the demonic army uh, here in uh, verse uh, 1 through 11 and now in verse 20, this army being removed from them. So geographical north, cosmic north, both north. Again, you have this conflating going on, which is the conversation we started in 1 through 11. So let's keep going. How is the enemy then, this northerner? How is he driven both into a waterless land or parched land, as your version might say, but then also into the seas. Uh, what's that about, verse 20? Again, uh, for my for my framework here, the, the highly figurative prophetic language here is intended to communicate a total and complete destruction of the invaders. They're going out of business. And so... Again, I mentioned the four points of the compass. <clears throat> you have the north, represented by the northerner. You have, uh, uh, they're driven to the south, the parched and desolate land. They're also driven into the eastern sea and the western sea. So you have east, west, north, south, all four points of the compass. I think that's all part of the the figure here of a complete and total destruction. Um, they're They're going away. They're going out of business. And you say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into what the seas are in, in the next verse, but we sure are. parched land, um, in my version, I think also in your version, in the Septuagint, it's rendered waterless land, waterless land. That's especially interesting because Jesus said that when a demon is cast out, it wanders through waterless places, not finding rest before returning to where they came from. In his example, the the demon-possessed person, or I think the bigger picture he was talking about actually was Jerusalem, the, the demon-possessed land. I mean, demons were abounding in the land when Jesus shows up. So waterless places, well, that was the desert. Those were desert places, and those are places, though, where death thrives, and it is the realm of supernatural chaos. It's both uh, physical and spiritual. In the ancient mind, demons dwell in deserts. Um, on the Day of Atonement, one goat is for Yahweh, and the other goat is sent out for Azazel. Sometimes it's called the scapegoat, but it says it's sent to Azazel. Well, who's Azazel? Azazel was a fallen angel trapped under the earth in the desert. That's what they believed. And so the sin of the people were placed on the goat and sent to where it belongs, with chaos, with death, with demons, with fallen angels. So there's more going on by mentioning a desert place, a waterless place. And you know what else was thought to be the realm of chaos? 
the sea. <laughs> so for this army to be driven to the desert and to the seas, both, that's a clear signaling that the army was not just human. It was demonic. It was spiritual. Um, let's, let's talk about the seas here, Nick. What do you think the two seas are? In which seas do they refer to? Could be the uh, the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, mm-hmm. uh, which would be your what? Let's see, the, that would be your west and your east, respectively. And again, combined with the north and the south imagery, the south being that parched land of the desert, the Negeb. Um, I think it's intended to communicate again the total desolation of those who oppressed his people. So, yeah, I'm leaning toward the geography, you say. (sighs) All right, I don't think the geography is what they have in mind here. Um, They could have named the seas, but rather it just says the Western Sea and the Eastern Sea. I think that that's the language of chaos, the supernatural realm where God does not reign, that's where chaos is. The sea doesn't actually have to be a body of water in cosmic terms. It just has to be a place where chaos reigns. And so in this sense, God's land, Israel, was the earth then. That was the land. And everywhere else was the sea. Yes, they know that there's other land outside of Israel's land, but they didn't always call it the land. In prophetic language, the other nations are called the sea. Not because it was literally water, but because it was chaos. It was where other gods reigned. It was not where Yahweh reigns. So I'm going to take that view. I'm going to say that there actually isn't a physical body of water they have in mind here. This supernatural enemy is going to be disposed of by going back to the supernatural realms of chaos, the deserts, the waterless places, and the seas. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's what I think. Well, verse 20, again, Nick, last question for verse 20. Did these things ever end up happening to a northern army? Well, I mean, I don't know any Babylonians today, do you? Right? I mean, <laughs> they they did go out of business. Um, and again, if we're dealing with highly figurative prophetic language, um, communicating that they were they were going away, well, they did. The Medo-Persians, they took over in the late 6th century B.C., and uh, Babylon was uh, no more. Uh, So that's my take, you say? Yeah, I don't think this ever happened to the Northern Army. It never happened. It was a possibility based on contingencies. Israel did not repent. Babylon was not pushed back. And Jewish exile lasts for 70 years. And even when Babylon is taken over by Medo-Persia, they're not really destroyed. Uh, They're just taken over without so much as a fight, actually, is a pretty interesting story, right? Don't they uh, cut off the the water to the rivers, and then they sneak underneath the gates into the um, tunnels, and then they come in, and they they take over in one night, and there's there's not even like a war. It just, boom, now Persia is in charge. That's right. The Babylonians went away. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for proving my point. (laughs) Right. They went away, but were they dispersed and destroyed in any sort of dramatic fashion, as would require by the language of driving them into the desert and to the seas, completely removing them? Yeah, they were removed. That's for sure. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, even, okay, even if, okay, let's say, because um, you're right, see sometimes in prophetic literature does have to do with uh, nations. Um, and off the top of my head, just spitballing here. Yeah, they, so the, the vanguard and the rear guard, the whole Babylonian army, yeah, they, they do eventually, they bleed into the other nations. They're gone as since they were taken over by the, the Medo-Persian Empire. So thanks for strengthening my argument here, yeah, Alex. I really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Which, by the way, okay, here's a question for okay. you then. Israel doesn't repent. These are all contingent prophecies. Right. So then you're, you're saying that the, the spiritual entity, the spiritual army, they're, they're not overthrown and defeated? Not at this point. They would have mm. been. They had been released to empower the Babylonians, but God would have called that whole deal off had they repented. But they didn't, and so he did not call the whole deal off. So they are, the, the enemy, the, both physical and spiritual, the army, both physical and spiritual, was not called off, was not dispersed into the wilderness and into the sea. Um, they, were, they fulfilled the word which Yahweh gave to them, which was, you can come take my people. I see. Yeah. So, uh, however, this idea of the uh, supernatural demonic entities being thrown into the sea and then their stench rising up uh, as they are destroyed, that continues into the New Testament when it talks about <laughs> people. Um, in Revelation, I think it's alluded to in Second Peter 3, about the demonic entities being thrown into the sea of fire and their smoke rising up forever so not to unload a whole study on revelation but <laughs> I, I think that revelation was based on something and that something was the old testament um all right well we got to push forward here what what do you else we do yeah. verse let's verse 23 let's talk about some vindication here um uh he has given the early rain for your vindication says uh verse 23 so, Alex, how does Yahweh bringing rain act as their vindication? Well, Yahweh was the real cloud rider, not Baal. Baal was called the cloud rider, but not in reality. He was, he was not. One of the gods uh, that they worshipped in idolatry was Baal. But it is Yahweh who brings the rains. The rains were the covenant barometer of their uh, faithfulness. So without the rain, the fertile crescent quickly turns into a desert. And since they didn't have irrigation that could accommodate the terrain of the hill country, uh, Yahweh sending the rain was their only hope and assurance that they are in covenant with him and they will be provided for. They will be blessed with an abundance. Any thoughts there, Nick? No, I think that's, I think that's good. Um, let's talk verses 26 and 27. It's repeated twice at the end of both verses. My people shall never again be put to shame. So was Israel ever put to shame again, Alex? Yeah, we talked about this earlier, right? <laughs> yes. If you take this to be a relenting of the locust plague, then they're still put to shame later by Babylon. So let's say they repent, the locust plague leaves, they get their uh, crops back, but then they fall back into idolatry again and Babylon comes. It's just like, well, then they're put to shame again because Babylon comes. If you take this to be pushed forward a little bit then. This is a return from exile. Uh, they'll go into exile, but then they'll come back and they'll never be ashamed again. Well, 
That's not true either. They are put to shame again by Rome in AD 70 when they're burned to the ground for the second time. So uh, 2 verses 26 through 27 can never come true because it was only an option had they repented. God's promises here were only a possibility. Their response was what would have made it a reality. So verses 26 and 27 can never come true now, ever, because the opportunity passed. So a key phrase here is also missing from the Masoretic text, but we can catch it in the Septuagint. It says, my people will never be put to shame unto the age. It's a, I think that's an important phrase that got cut off there. Unto the age, both times it says that. Here, even had they repented, there was still a coming time, an age that they were waiting for. This was the age of the Messiah. And it's the idea that the age of the Messiah, the age to come, that they were waiting for would be inaugurated then by what the following verses say, which is why we're going to stop here at verse 27 after this last question. We'll pick back up in verse 28 in the next podcast. So, Nick. uh, Well, let me just say, um, my people will never again be put to shame. That is, again, eerily similar to what Ezekiel tells the people in exile when they would be returned to the land. That's the Ezekiel 36 passage. That he would bring them back to their own land. This is Ezekiel speaking to the exiles, that they would uh, never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And it's interesting, the context here for these this repeated phrase, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And then the other thing, verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, uh, that I am Yahweh your God. So the connection here being to famine, just like the Ezekiel text, but here also with idolatry. Um, very interesting that, uh, yeah, the famine and idolatry, that I think is specifically contextually in reference to the shame, never be putting, put to shame again. Uh, and they really didn't have a problem with idolatry after the exile. Um, I think they got carried away with that, unfortunately, uh, by the time you get to Jesus. But, And I'm struggling to think of a time where you had the famine stuff, but um, uh, those seem to be the, the connections for me. Which passage in Ezekiel are you looking at? 36, 30. Uh, so uh, that's that's the connection there that I make to understand the never be put to shame again. It's connected to famine and idolatry. Well, here's the thing. Verse 30 says, I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. And so... uh, And I think the word there for disgrace, if I'm not mistaken, is the same word that's used here in Joel for, for the shame, or at least for reproach. I'd have to look again, but... Right, right, right. So, is this in 36? You caught me off guard because I haven't studied Ezekiel in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Is here in 36, is this talking about what they need to do before 586? Or is this talking about after 586 has already happened? I think it's Ezekiel in exile because he goes to exile with the the people. But he goes in one of the earlier deportations, doesn't he? Because there's three deportations. Mm -hmm. So, do we know that this is after the third and final deportation or is this before that or is it during at least during his exile i mean right so there's a promise that they'll they're going to come back to the land and they do they come back to the land well 
And so, but again, yeah. uh, you're catching me off guard because I have to go back and study, <laughs> study this now. Because you well, have a good fine. point. Just... You have a good point. But if Ezekiel is talking to the first two group of exiles, not the last group of exiles, then there's still time to repent before Jerusalem is burned to the ground in 586. And so, is he talking again about that repentance that could happen? before the final destruction of 586? Or is that a foregone conclusion? The destruction of 586 is coming, you can't stop it anymore, even if you repented. But, good news, you'll come back in 70 years. Are you taking the latter, I assume? All I'm saying is, for me, with the way that I'm interpreting not only Joel, but also the Ezekiel passage, is they're coming back to the land, and the disgrace and the shame, connected with famine and idolatry, are going to go... that that doesn't happen anymore. And so the, for me, the Joel prophecy, and this is what I think I've been arguing throughout the whole thing consistently from my interpretive framework, these these prophecies were fulfilled. Well, wait a second. Whereas whereas you're you're saying they're contingent and that's that's fine. They're contingent upon repentance in order to be fulfilled. And they're not fulfilled because they don't meet the contingencies of repentance. Right. But hold right. on a second. Aren't they don't they experience some um famine again during Malachi because they're bringing bunk uh, sacrifices to the Lord and and, and the prophecy against them is like you know you you do all this work and you reap but you have nothing to show for it like you got you know a hole in your pocket you can't keep anything that you get is that I mean is that not far enough into famine or rebuke or or uh, to, to count as not being put to shame again or what it's a good question. All right, well. <laughs> I'll play the Alex Flipkart and say I haven't studied Malachi in a while. So. <laughs> Understandable, my friend. Completely understand. <laughs> All right, well, last, last verse then, verse 27. Who are the gods of the nations um, if there is no other besides Yahweh? Here in verse 27. Uh, so Greg Boyd has written a book that I'm working through uh, called God at War, and he offers the term creational monotheism to explain what we find in the Bible, that there are these lesser, though very powerful, beings who are in Scripture referenced sometimes as gods, lowercase g. These beings, these entities, they have rebelled against God, some of them have, and they are at war against God and, by extension, humanity. And there are a great many cultures across history. Boyd brings this out in his book, makes the case that uh, many cultures, many peoples throughout history have had similar views, that there are these powerful lesser beings who are, at least for those cultures, they're to be venerated. But there's only one supreme being who is to be worshipped. And so Yahweh alone in Scripture is to be worshipped. At the same time, there are these powerful spiritual beings, these lowercase g gods. Some have remained obedient. Others have rebelled. And this is, this is typical across Old Testament and New Testament. And so, with reference to, excuse me, there, are, there is none else. That I am Yahweh your God. There is none else. There's no other gods, right? And you get a lot of this in Isaiah as well. Um, it's true that there really is no other God like Yahweh, who is who alone, he alone is to be worshipped. 
But there are these other entities, and they're distinct from Yahweh in that way, and they do uh, powerful damage. And that's, Alex, that's the case you've been making throughout this uh, Joel 2 uh, study is about these uh, avenging angels or could be Satan, right? That's, these, that's, that's right. There are these, these very powerful spiritual beings. Uh, and I think that's that's uh, how we are to understand phrases like "there is none else." There's no one else that is worthy of worship except for Yahweh alone. Doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means they don't they don't uh, warrant worship. Uh, what do you think? I agree. Um, same kind of language here for "I am Yahweh." There is no other besides me. You find that elsewhere in the Old Testament, like Isaiah forty-seven eight, where Babylon is being judged and it says that Babylon said in her heart, I am and there is no other. Uh, same thing in Zephaniah uh, 2.15. And I think it's is Nineveh being judged there. I have to go back and look at that. But I know that also says, uh, Nineveh says in her heart, I am and there is no other besides me. Now, did Babylon or Nineveh or any of these other ancient um, city-states or empires, did they really think that no other countries existed? No, of course not. It's a statement of being incomparable to the other nations. And in the same way, when Yahweh says, there is none besides me, it's a statement of incomparability. No other God compares to him. He is the creator. They are created beings. He is the most high God. They are lesser. So that's um, a good thing to keep in mind because uh, I think there is this confusion that the gods of the nations are figments of people's imagination and that they're just wired to worship something so they make up their own things to worship and then that gets conflated with today like you know worshiping uh your car or something like that and i just feel like we make that jump too fast and we need to slow down for a second because uh the bible takes the existence of these other gods very seriously and so when yahweh says i'm the most high god i'm greater than all these other gods if those other gods are not actually real, they're just figments of imagination, then that statement becomes kind of hilarious because he's saying, I'm greater than your imaginary friend. <laughs> I'm, I'm bigger and stronger than your Legos. It's like, well, hold on a second. Is that really what God's saying? Is that something to brag about? Well, no, this is, <laughs> this is not the kind of thing that's actually going on. These are real beings, but God is Yahweh and distinct from these other beings. Any thoughts, Nick? Right on the money. All right. That concludes our sermon for today. You know, we're sitting at an hour and 21 minutes, and so um, <laughs> should we do a quick one-minute sermon, Nick, just to leave our audience Very with? quick, all I right, suppose. Right. Um, again, Sunday's coming. No more than 60 we, seconds. We have hearts for preachers. We're going to give you guys your sermons for Sunday <laughs> in one minute or less. Text and the, the beginning of a sermon. That's right. And, Nick, I believe it's your turn to go first. All right, let's so do it. So I'm bringing to you... Um, a classic from the uh, 1980s hit movie Rocky IV. This is where Rocky has to uh, fight the Russian in order to avenge his uh, dead friend Apollo. So, the song that we are going for today is called No Easy Way Out by Robert Tepper. There's no easy way out There's no shortcut home there's no easy way out. Giving and giving and can be wrong. Okay, Nick. No easy way out. Rocky Four, Robert Tepper, one minute, go. 
Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of uh, the Gospels, and he is praying, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But there is no easy way out, not when it comes to the salvation of mankind. And so therefore he also prays, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there is no shortcut for the redemption of uh, mankind, and so he does. He goes to the cross because there's no uh, easy way out. And there's also no easy way out of our sins. That's why Jesus goes to the cross, and that's why we are called to uh, repent, change our behavior, change our thinking. We are called to obey the gospel by being baptized, immersed in water, have all of our sins washed away by the precious blood of Jesus. No easy way out when it comes to discipleship either in living the life that God has called us to. All right. Very good, sir. That was impressive. Matthew, what, 26? Yeah, <laughs> 20, 27, 26, 27. Yep. <clears throat> Very good. No easy way out of the garden. No easy way out of our sin. No easy, no easy way out of that one-minute sermon. Discipleship. <laughs> no easy way out of the one-minute sermon. <laughs> Speaking of no easy way out. Oh, man. <laughs> um, in the late 90s, this young lady came onto the scene with a smash hit. Britney Spears, I'm talking about. And her song, Oops, I Did It Again. <laughs> No. Oops, I did it again, right? Oops, I did it again. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> one minute on the clock, Alex. Give us a one-minute sermon. Go. Okay, well, when one is truly repentant of sin, it is not taken lightly when they sin again. You know, when we see in the Old Testament, when David... Uh, he does horrible, terrible sins. And yet, after each time he sins, his heart is stricken with grief. He's a man after God's own heart. His conscience was stricken. And when he repented, he repented with uh, rivers of tears, with true fasting and prayer, and with a contrite heart. He said, if I could bring you a thousand sacrifices and that would take care of it, I would. But it wouldn't. It's a broken and contrite heart and spirit which you desire. And there's no, uh, oops, I did it again, and then moving on. There has to be a true repentance, and thus the same story continues in the New Testament. Pete, uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians, uh, repentance, godly sorrow leads to real, true, godly repentance. And thus it is for us today. If we continue walking in the light, as he's in the light, First John 1, then we will have forgiveness. But we must also confess our sins, repent of our sins, and it must be a walk which we take seriously. No, oops, I did it again. That's not what happens with true repentance. Is my one minute up? Bravo. Is that one minute? It, it's been up. Bravo. <laughs> like I, couldn't, I couldn't stop that. It just kept flowing. It's too good. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Britney Spears. <sighs> All right. So next time we'll pick up with 228 or what is called 3-1 in the Hebrew. Ooh. Oh. Um, in the meantime, though, Flop if you'd tickets. like to... Go back and dig into the archives. You can do that through uh, the iTunes store or through the Google Play Music store. Go to either one of those places, search Swordplay. You'll find uh, the episodes that we've done there. Leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about it. Share it on social media, things like that as well.
And if you have any questions, send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think. And please uh, leave a review on those uh, podcast apps or sites. It will help us to spread the word. And we will tune in next week for the um, next episode of Joel, starting in verse 28. And we'll see you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.